and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. Today is the episode of May 12, 2022. It's episode 73. And we have as guest this week, Patrick Griffin, editor at Vaporound Magazine in the UK. Vaporound is the world's leading vape trade B2B publication. And Patrick Griffin has worked for Vaporound since its launch in 2015 and is a passionate advocate for vaping as a reduced risk alternative to smoking. With him, we're talking about flavor bans on vaping products, Canadian vaping policy and the cost of vaping versus smoking. So if you're interested in that exchange, you will find all of it at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, Turkey is told to play nice or pay the price when it comes to agri-food trade. And my colleague Maria Champlier, research manager at the CCC, joins me to talk about what is in store at CCC's research unit this year. So let's get started. First of all, I wanted to talk about this story. Play nice if you want our agri-trade. EU hangs food security threat over Turkey is what Euractive is writing this week. Turns out there is actually an uh, agricultural summit happening in Ankara, Turkey, uh, between the uh, EU, EU Agriculture Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski and Turkish Agriculture Minister. And I'm, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name here. Uh, Kristje, I think, is roughly uh, what it's supposed to be. And they're talking about what are the relationships between the two, uh, um, well, between the European Union and Turkey. Uh, there is some interdependency there, and Turkey has actually had a rough time, not only because of inflation that we've talked about on this podcast, but also because a very high reliance on uh, foreign wheat imports. So according to the Observatory of Economic Complexity of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Turkey mostly imports from Russia $1.66 billion, then Ukraine for $208 million. Canada, 104, and Germany, 100 million dollars of wheat being imported into Turkey each year. Now, of course, with Russia and Ukraine out of the picture, and now Germany being a problem because agri-food trade goes both ways is at least the narrative of the European Union. So what exactly is the problem? The EU says that Turkey is not reliable enough to comply with EU standards on certification and veterinary standards. There have been previously a number of issues related to live cattle exports from the EU to Turkey, as well as organic exports and labeling on products originating from Turkey. Now, a lot of our organic food in the European Union actually comes from Turkey, even though the domestic consumption in Turkey is not, uh, is not on, in any way comparable to what we have in the European Union. Um, so uh, I actually wrote about this in uh, one of the papers on the Consumer Choice Center website. So if you go under consumerchoicecenter.org, uh, then research and then publications, there's a paper called Illicit Trade. And on that, I wrote with my colleague Luca Bertoletti on um, the illicit trade in uh, crop protection products and fertilizers. And also, uh, there was some interesting facts there about fraudulent uh, organic uh, imports. So the European Court of Auditors uh, noted that member states were delayed in their reporting to the European Commission by an average of four months and that 50% of all analyzed reports, this is of imported agricultural products, were missing information, which makes it likely that a very large amount of organic food, for instance, that imported from Turkey, is not detected as fraudulent by certain member states. So depending on where you import, uh, which, which country imports, uh, uh, Turkish uh, vegetables, for instance, 
the same European standards are differently enforced. And 50% is a very high margin, which makes it uh, uh, problematic. Uh, and also, by the way, there's no real scientific method to test whether a food is genuinely organic. It is about the production uh, standards, but also certification that happens within the country and a certain level of trust uh, that goes on when it comes to trade policy. Uh, but then on cattle, uh, in 2020, Turkish authorities rejected 800 cattle carried by Lebanon flagged ship Karim Allah and 1,800 cattle on the other uh, Togo flagged ship over suspicion of blue tongue virus. Um, and uh, although an outbreak amongst the bovines was not confirmed, uh, authorities in the end did uh, order the, um, the slaughter of the unwanted animals. So um, there seem to be some some issues here now. Some member states, in the opinion of course, Greece and Cyprus, which had ongoing clashes uh, with Turkey, well, for quite a while now, but most recently since 2020, uh, they want to uh, uh, go on a you know, choose a harder line to negotiate with Turkey. But there's also other countries, such as Poland. Poland also in charge of the uh, uh, the, the, the European Commission's agricultural uh, wing. Uh, they say that Turkey needs uh, to address these issues. Um, and of course, now uh, the EU are having a negotiating position because the, because Europe is the second biggest supplier of high-protein wheat to Turkey with 1.33 million uh, megatons uh, shipped in 2020, most commonly sourced from Germany, Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. Uh, so there is interdependency here, and both countries will have to figure out the exact uh, details of that. We're not sure yet if this summit will uh, give us news, but the agricultural fight is certainly interesting because, as we've seen with energy, um, countries need to forge alliances and renegotiate existing uh, treaties. In any way, um, I, I do think it makes sense for the EU to review the uh, subsidies that are being given to agricultural infrastructure in Turkey, uh, because it's not quite sensible why we're subsidizing the trade partners. It, I mean, that's either you put it on the price and then you say, OK, well, we need to increase prices because... Um, uh, we need a certain, you know, upgrade in our infrastructure. But us uh, subsidizing the infrastructure and then buying it, uh, um, buying it at, at a cheaper price, that is distorting the actual uh, value, uh, the actual prices for consumers, and that doesn't make too much sense. But next up, I'm talk to uh, Maria Chapria, research manager at the Consumer Choice Center, about what we have in store for 2022 when it comes to research. And uh, she had uh, quite a lot of workload to. Uh, to tell us about um, so in terms of our plans for uh, this year um, we are planning to have the sharing economy index like the way we did last year and the year before um, it's probably going to be published sometime in July or maybe August um, because we are not figuring out some of the best ways to improve it so we can make sure that consumers get to explore even more options in terms of the sharing economy services. Uh, then we are also going to have the famous railway index published in the next month or so. Uh, we are also revising it to make sure that... Um, the methodology is improved and we are trying to account for all the feedback, which we are very thankful for. Thank you to our listeners who are uh, checking out our report and trying to help us improve it. That's always very, very helpful. Um, we're also probably going to have some more papers on nicotine, some papers on vaping a bit later in the year. And one interesting piece of research, which we've never done before, but which I think is going to be very interesting to uh, people who follow us, um, is the one... Um, 
on 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 best cities uh, where you can be a freelancer, move around, where you can get access to various hubs, potentially uh, pay less taxes, and all of those uh, interesting things which uh, many of us got to explore thanks to COVID and to continue to explore because it's it's very cool to travel around the world. Yeah, a lot of European cities are actually uh, trying to branch out, trying to make it very interesting for uh, uh, freelancers to move there. I also uh, uh, followed our uh, polling. I thought I was. I saw there were some very interesting uh, uh, numbers there. So we had uh, quite a few uh, different uh, areas. A few of them you've mentioned now that already we do research on, so innovation, sharing economy, agriculture, and food, and science and energy. So we can just pick out a few uh, uh, numbers here. Um, 69% of consumers agree that innovation plays an important role in making their lives better. Numbers like this, um, what does it mean to you when, when, when you see when a large amount of consumers are polled that these results come in? What, what, what does it tell you in terms of your work? Well, it tells us that when governments are trying to intervene with in, in, innovative approaches, innovative projects, they are not doing this to the benefit of consumers. They are doing this in a very, very misguided manner because obviously they are supposed to listen to consumers consumers and to do what consumers want and which they themselves as consumers want but for some reason they try to put brakes on innovation which is obviously against everything that especially European consumers want because the polling we did was in Belgium. Exactly yeah and there were there were other interesting uh, numbers there also relating to to innovation when it comes to agriculture all of that can be checked out by our listeners uh, you just have to go on uh, the consumerchoicecenter.org website you go on research and then you find it under publications many of the publications that uh, that Maria has also uh, worked on um, and in terms of just one more one, one more question and we're already out of time uh, Maria uh, you sometimes see that uh, this has uh, quite the news effect, these uh, indexes and these research papers that we do. Um, it, it, it really it really does quite a splash on, on some of these issues. I remember that train stations for a while were one of them. Uh, can you can you give us a bit of the story why you think um, train stations were so so appealing uh, from, a, from a media perspective to see our rankings there? Well, honestly, I think it's just fun for people to argue over what station is better because many people obviously travel around the world and what was quite fascinating is last year we got emails from people who were arguing very very passionately oh no I'm from Zurich why isn't Zurich railway stations the top first station it's so amazing I went to the station I've counted everything you should reconsider this this and this and next year I hope Zurich is going to be the first, the best railway station in Europe. So I think it just gives people something to be excited about, which is great because they are consumers, they get to explore these services and uh, for us to give them a chance to have this uh, healthy and exciting discussion is very good. And very briefly, uh, on the diligence level that you put into this, uh, a train station index, for instance, how much time does that take to actually elaborate, to give sort of an impression as to how much work goes into it? Oh, it's probably at least four weeks of research and then at least four weeks of double checking everything and then probably another two weeks for graphics and uh, writing a report but yeah it's it, the research part is the most difficult we are trying to get in touch with railway stations in order to make sure that our data is first hand but they're not being very responsive so we need to follow up and call them again and, and try to find some alternative sources of information 
Well, you're definitely quicker than uh, it takes me to get a new driver's license in Luxembourg. So in any way, uh, less uh, quicker than the bureaucrats. And that's what we are supposed to do. Maria, thank you so much for coming on. And for all of our listeners, uh, please do check out our publications page on consumerchoicecenter.org. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And then last but not least, I have Patrick Griffin, editor at Vaporound Magazine in the UK, uh, which is a B2B publication. Um, and uh, Patrick has worked for Vaporound since its launch in 2015 and is a passionate advocate for vaping as a reduced risk alternative to smoking. We talked about vape flavor bans, Canadian vaping policy with a preview on Vaporound's next edition and the cost of vaping. Is vaping cheaper than smoking conventional cigarettes? All these questions we try to answer in this segment. So... Please enjoy. Patrick Griffin, thank you so much for joining us today on the Consumer Podcast. It's great to have you. Uh, we talk vaping a few times on this podcast already, uh, usually with uh, Michael Lundell from the World Vapors Alliance. But I wanted to uh, diversify our guests a bit on this issue. And you've been working on this for quite a while. So for our listeners who don't know who you are, what do you do and what do you do in the realm of uh, vaping? Okay, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, to speak on this podcast. Uh, my name is Patrick Griffin. I am the editor of Vaporound magazine, uh, which is based in the UK. Um, we're based out of Derby, um, near Birmingham, uh, which is near London, depending on how far away you are. Um, and we've been going for about seven years now. Uh, we are a business-to-business publication. Um, we started off as a consumer magazine, um, but very, very quickly, uh, regulation uh, crept in. And uh, we now can't really spread the message to consumers because we have adverts for vaping and people aren't allowed to see those. So sadly, um, it would be better if we could communicate directly with people. because We can probably sort of go into that a little bit because a lot of smokers don't know uh, that there is an alternative um, and we are trying to do everything we possibly can to get that message out there. As I said, Vaporound magazine has been going for around seven years. It's um, internationally recognised now. It's the uh, it's one um, magazine, vape magazine of the year for five years running. Um, we take it to shows. Uh, hello. We take it to we take it to shows for the listeners for the listeners who didn't see that that was my cat trying to intervene and uh, say his piece as well. Sorry, Patrick. Okay, that's okay. I'll just start that bit again. Um, yes, we've been going for uh, seven years. We've won uh, the best uh, vape magazine for uh, five years running, and we take the magazine to uh, shows and expos and vape events right around the world. Um, so we're very proud to call ourselves the um, the world's uh, best and most known uh, vaping magazine. Um, and it's a uh, it's a fascinating industry and one that is very important because it does help save lives and I'm the editor and I've been doing that since the beginning that is a lot of a lot of great work you've been you've been in and out of all these conversations so some of this might not uh, will definitely not be new to you but um, I, I think it seems that regulators and, and anti-vaping campaigners seem to be increasingly inventive as to as to what they're targeting and the, and the latest target is flavored vapes and so um here the claim seems to be and that's that's we've heard that on an eu stage but now specific member states are targeting uh, the flavors that are being used for e-cigarette e uh, liquids um what exactly is the issue uh, can you explain this for us it seems that um uh, this would attract uh, children is that is that is that the the main issue as to as to why some regulators think that uh, these liquids should be banned yes that basically is it in uh, in a nutshell. Um, they believe that um, flavors are bad because flavors attract children, 
uh, and young people, and then that in turn leads as a gateway for them to smoke. Now, um, and the, depending on how far down this rabbit hole you go, um, other people would say that flavors are a deliberate um, ploy uh, by uh, vaping companies to attract children. Um, <laughs> None of these are actually correct, actually. The flavors have been shown to be absolutely vital to encourage adult smokers to keep vaping. Um, so it is that the, the flavors in survey after survey have been shown that they keep people vaping, and that's the important thing. Now, there is an issue with youth vaping and basically young people will experiment with things which are out there especially if you're told this is not for you um, and in terms of I know where I would be if there was a young person and they were going to either experiment with smoking or vaping um, it's probably better to do it with vaping because that is far, far less harmful. And any impact on a, on a, a young person's health will be transitory because the evidence shows that a lot of people, they will try vaping as a fad and go, yeah, I've tried that, I'm not really interested in it. The good thing, if there can be anything that can be sort of good about sort of youth vaping, and I'm really not an advocate for youth vaping at all, is that surveys have shown that it then does, they would perhaps not experiment with smoking. Um, and that is the real danger. That is the problem that we have to be aware of, the youth smoking and not necessarily youth vaping. But youth vaping, if it happens, is transitory. They will experiment, um, but it does not lead to um, people then going on to smoke. In fact, the opposite. Um, and flavors are primarily designed, in fact, exclusively designed for adult smokers to switch to vaping. What you say about experimenting is absolutely true. I, I mean, my first first cigarette was Marlboro Red. There was no menthol or anything. Sorry, mom, if you're finding out this way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that that's that's definitely true. Now, uh, I just wanted to briefly um, uh, jump on this on, on this conversation because in the Netherlands, the government says that it wants to draft a list of acceptable flavors and. Um, we knew from the start is that it, already in the Netherlands now at petrol stations you're only allowed to buy for the for the closed systems you can only have a mint and tobacco flavor. Now, um, what do you make of this conversation of uh, flavors that have less of a risk of making uh, children attracted to them? This is ridiculous. The whole idea of acceptable flavors is is just balmy. Acceptable to who? Uh, who decides if a flavor is acceptable or not? Surely, a flavor is a acceptable if the market has an appetite for that flavor basically um, and the the it has been shown that sort of fruit flavors for example a lot of people like fruit flavors some people don't necessarily like fruit flavors and they'd like like an aniseed flavor or a sweet flavor or a bakery flavor um, some people like menthol some people absolutely hate menthol the reason that we have so many flavors is that in the typical journey from a smoker to a vapor you will go through quite a large number of flavors you might like it but you might like a fruit 
in the morning, for example, and as the day progresses, you might want something else. Um, this is why there are flavors. So the whole idea that some flavors are acceptable and some flavors are not acceptable is an absolute nonsense. The only way that I could see where some flavors are, are acceptable or not acceptable comes down to the, the, the manufacturing of the e-liquids themselves. Now, sometimes you can have um, combinations of different flavors when um, made into an aerosol and, and, and vaporized to, to be able to, to use. This can produce harmful chemicals. The only unacceptable flavors are when you mix them and they could be sort of harm. But this is tested in regulated products. So I would say the only uh, unacceptable flavors are ones that have a, a, a degree of harm. And when we have a regulated market, we we weed those out, if you like, at that process. So I'm completely against this idea of um, you must only have these. You, you wouldn't do that in the supermarket. The government wouldn't say, well, you can have um, cabbage and broccoli and that's it. That, that wouldn't be allowed. So why, why should oh, it be acceptable Patrick, here? don't give them ideas. <laughs> no, okay. Don't give them ideas. We never, we never know who will pick up on it. And speaking of uh, picking, up, picking up on ideas, we very often see that even though policy is uh, very local in, in, in the European Union uh, uh, so far on this issue, uh, regulators often look abroad and they look at, okay, what are other countries doing? And, and I know that you've been looking at uh, another country, which is Canada. And so uh, you've been you've been working on this issue. So I was curious, what exactly is happening in, in Canada? There's this body, uh, Health Canada, I assume it's probably similar to what Public Health England used to be or still is. I never know the status on these things in, in the UK. Um, uh, so, so what exactly is happening in Canada? What are they doing on the issue of vaping? So Canada is a really uh, good example. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's very sad what's happened in Canada. Um, a few years back, Canada was like the UK and was seen as the leading light um, in, in terms of vaping. They were very, very progressive about it. Um, they were welcoming vaping with, with open arms. Um, and it was thought um, that unlike America, which um, is really, really anti-vaping and there's flavor bans and outright bans and all sorts, that Canada uh, would be showing a more um, um, progressive and evidence-based approach. And this was the case um, until they um, were sidetracked by bodies such as the World Health Organization um, who produced reports saying that sort of vaping is bad and if you're a smoker please don't try vaping because it's evil um, and the only way to quit vote, uh, uh, smoking is um, to just stop the, the, the quit or die approach or the, um, the, the medical intervention um, which um, really doesn't work very well. And again, the problem was that um, they said that it appeals to children, that vaping appeals to children, and will get a new um, generation of young people uh, hooked on nicotine. And you can see that that, that that could be a powerful example. If, if, if you as a, as a government and regulators are trying to get people off nicotine and something new comes along, that, that wow, this is going to sort of hook a new generation, you might think, well, this is bad, so we must stop it. But it's missing the point, and this, this is what's happened with Canada. They, they have completely ignored all the benefits, all the harm reduction benefits, all the benefits of stopping smokers doing something that's incredibly dangerous and doing something that is much, much less harmful and solely concentrated uh, on the fact that it, it may uh, ha have an effect on children and they may transitorily experiment with this. Um, and they've kind of put all of their eggs in one basket, if you like, and just gone down this route. 
Um, and we've got a story in the next edition of the magazine from um, two uh, leading advocates in tobacco harm regulation. Um, there's Clive Bates, uh, who um, is uh, an, an academic and knows virtually everything about sort of vaping. He runs his own website, The Counterfactual. And um, David Sweener, who is a uh, leading uh, Canadian um, lawyer. And that they're both sort of experts in vaping. And they're... Um, they responded to a consultation that Health Canada is having at the moment. Health Canada would be the regulator for uh, vaping and tobacco. Um, every now and again, um, governments review their legislation and say, hey, is this still fit for purpose? Is it doing what it needs to do? Um, and Health Canada are now currently undergoing a consultation. And these two guys are among a lot of people, a lot of angry people, shall I say, who have responded to this consultation um, and basically said, guys, you're going the wrong way. You are, in fact, becoming the enemy of innovation if you continue like this. Um, you, you have got an opportunity to get Canada back on track, but by concentrating on this one single issue, um, you're doing a disservice to the smokers out there who want to quit. You're doing a disservice to everybody in the country because it's going to impact the health of generations of people. Um, and they make a very good point. You can't take one issue, youth vaping, and have that in isolation from adult smoking because the, the, the two are linked. You have to have a you have to look at all the things that that um, that are good and bad about vaping, and then make a decision in the round. Um, and their argument is um, that the harm it will do to ban vaping or ban flavors or discourage people smokers from knowing about it far, far, far outweighs um, a relatively small amount of young people that would be trying vaping just to see what it's all about. And, uh, and and I think our listeners will try and learn all about that now. Just remind them briefly where and when they will be able to read this. Um, this is coming out in um, about six weeks' time, I believe, on uh, Vaporound. Um, our website is uh, vaporound.co.uk, www.vaporound.co.uk. You can get the latest edition of our magazine there. Um, you can subscribe to the magazine uh, if you wish to, I believe, as well. Um, but uh, yes, you can read uh, read all about it there, um, and that's just one of the examples of the. You know, we do stories like this time and time again, and I sometimes wonder what it is that politicians are thinking uh, and regulators are thinking. I think they can generally be sort of blinded by this sort of moral panic that seems to exist over youth vaping, and you can understand why, but. You also, if you're in a position where you are making very, very important laws, you you really need to look at the whole picture and go, what is going to happen? And what are the unintended consequences of a regulation that I may um, be supporting? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's that's sort of the issue with with politicians is that, um, well, you know, you have you have staff and so on, but you might not necessarily have the time or the. The, the concentration to go through all of that, even though they should, especially those on the relevant committees, I, you would expect that the people on the health committees would go uh, through more than just a few headlines to uh, to make decisions. Uh, Patrick, um, I wanted to have one more issue I wanted to talk to you about. And I think you've heard it many times uh, when you talk to people who uh, know about vaping, have heard about vaping. Uh, a question that I've gotten a few times is, isn't this terribly expensive? Because you have this device, 
you need a coil, you need to have a, a new battery, all these liquids. That must be terribly expensive. I might as well stay with smoking. Uh, it looks much, uh, it's probably much cheaper, right? So what do you say to those people who, who see e-cigarettes as uh, probably something they don't want to do because too costly? Yeah, this is something that I hear from time to time as well. Um, I think it, it, there is absolutely no doubt at all that smoking is incredibly expensive. Um, and it's incredibly expensive because um, a lot of countries sort of tax it very, very high. Uh, they put sort of uh, excise duties and, and um, uh, they put duties on cigarettes. Um, and I think if you've been smoking for, for a long time, you just get used to paying this price. Now, what you don't necessarily think is that uh, you might think that an alternative is going to be more expensive for the reasons that you've given. Vaping is basically a fraction of the cost of smoking, and that is what a lot of smokers don't realize. They, they see that it's something that you, you, you've got to plug it in to recharge it, and it's got the coils and everything. This must be expensive, um, but it actually isn't. Um, because e-cigarettes are uh, vaping devices are incredibly um, simple devices generally the, the e-liquids have only got sort of three or four ingredients in them um, their they're economies of scale mean they're really um, easy to produce um, and you can get them for um, I, I don't know exactly how much cheaper there are but I mean if, if cigarettes can cost you thousands of pounds uh, in the UK in a year, uh, vaping might cost you hundreds. So um, it is a lot, lot cheaper. Now, um, the other thing that I think people get slightly confused about is that sort of, I don't think many people would ever say that smoking is their hobby. Um, hey, what do you like doing for fun? Smoking. Yeah, uh, I go to smoking conventions and I love it. Um, but there are some people um, that really like vaping and like the devices and like building their own coils and um, making sort of custom devices. Now, if you're into that and you do it as a hobby, then you can spend a lot of money on that, like you do on a, like people do for a lot of their hobbies. But we're now talking about people who are actually using <laughs> vaping as an alternative to smoking, um, and that does not cost a lot of money at all, unless. And this has happened unless governments get greedy um, and decide to tax it very, very high. And then it can be expensive. But then that leads to other consequences as well, which we may come on to later. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I was wondering about this because you've covered uh, you, you, you read and, and cover both the consumer side, but also from the from the from the producer side, you, you see that angle as well. I've been wondering because when I started vaping, um, I was behaving sort of the the way I can I, I behave with other consumer goods and electronics. I was thinking, oh, doesn't Philips make something like this as well? You know, I would trust that brand. You know, Philips or Siemens or any of those. Um, um, do do you think that might eventually happen, or, or why are sort of these big electronics brands not actually involved in in in, in you know branding a product of their own? Why is it that you know many of the brands in vaping they're known within the vaping community, but then these these brands don't mean anything to the average consumer or or smoker for that matter? Why is that? I think with um, with any new industry and any new disruptive industry. Um, Bigger companies perhaps like to sort of sit back for a while and just sort of see what's going to happen before deciding to, um, you know, shall we in invest um, millions of pounds or millions of dollars in sort of uh, going onto this? They like to just see where the trends are. And that may happen uh, in the future. And I think you're quite right from that point of view in that sort of um, names that might be sort of household names for me being in the industry. Um, 
people may not necessarily know who they are. And I think brands are important for a lot of people. Um, one of the things that, that, that I would say about that, if you don't know the companies, um, if um, uh, uh, products, hardware and e-liquids are being sold from um, reliable, reputable stores, um, you can be sure that they are good and they have gone through a, a, a testing process um, and are shown to be sort of good consumer products. Um, the, the, the situation arises again when, there are, when, when countries impose things like sort of flavour bans or whatever it might be, that then leads to a black market where you get products that, that aren't tested and sort of can have a problem. So if you don't necessarily know the brands, if they're being sold by a reliable stockist, then, then they will be good. Patrick, this is almost as much time as unfortunately we have for today, but I had one more question that was sent in to me and, and I thought it was, it was very interesting. Somebody asked me, um, I recently, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he, he recently was in a situation where he wanted to get some liquid and uh, the store was closed. And so he went and got a, a liquid from a, a petrol station and he really disliked it. Uh, he, and, he th and he asked me whether is this bad quality possibly like harmful for me is like a very cheap liquid that I get for like a, a euro or less uh, is that is that going to be problematic for me so your advice to consumers there can there be issues with that yes um okay look it's like this um sort of petrol stations and convenience stores they're good For a lot of things, um, you wouldn't get um, you wouldn't get your partner a bunch of flowers from a from a petrol station for Valentine's Day uh, because that's not going to be sort of great quality. You wouldn't get like the Christmas gift there um, because they're not going to have the range. Um, and a lot of people think that sort of all vaping products are created equally, and they're not. Um, I think it's with everything in life. If you, if you pay one euro or one pound or one dollar for something, um, and there's something else that might be five euros or six or eight euros, there is a reason that there's a difference in price. Um, so if if you've had a bad experience from that, um, I would then say go to a specialist vape store and say, um, I've tried this. Um, it's it's not very good for me. And they'll go, yeah, please don't try that one this might work better for you instead. So it's at the end of the day, it's what you pay, um, the, 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 what you want to pay, um, but you need to get a product that's right for you um, and that works. And you may not necessarily um, get that from the, uh, the, the, the midnight petrol station. Patrick Griffin, thank you so much for joining us on the Consumer Podcast today. It was a pleasure talking to you and getting your expertise. Ah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, it, it went so quickly. There was so much more that I wanted to say. So um, maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. We'll have you back on. And for all the listeners, you will find all the links to, uh, to Patrick's work and the magazine in the description of this podcast episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out the description box for all the links to Vaporine Magazine and Patrick Griffin's work. And also follow the Consumer Choice Center on Twitter at ConsumerChoiceC. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn.